Well, <clears throat> when we bought our house here in Bloomington back in 2005, uh, it was one of those, we're buying this based on potential kind of purchases. Uh, in fact, those were the instructions my wife gave me before she sent me to come look and make the decision completely by myself uh, while she remained at home with our then three-year-old son, Seth, and our just-turned-one-year-old daughter, Leah, who are 18 and 16 now, um, and was packing up our house in Springfield, Missouri, where we were moving from. So I got sent with those instructions. Uh, check it out and look for potential and make the call. Like, no, no risk there at whatsoever, right? So, so I was looking for potential, and I come to this house, and it was not very impressive at first sight, right? There was a number of issues that we'll get to in a minute. It, it needed a lot of work to really kind of be livable for us. Uh, but when I came to kind of the backside of the house as we walked through the kitchen, uh, there was this beautiful, wonderful, and still it's there, this screened-in deck. Uh, and I was like, okay. There's potential here. So, and it was a great deal. So <laughs> we, we, we decided to go for it. And by we, I mean I decided to go for it and prayed that um, I'd still be married when I got home. Uh, no, it, we, we, we went for it, right? We spent our early days when we moved to Bloomington. Uh, we would, uh, you know, I'd go, I was working with the campus ministry and I'd be working there during the daytime. And then kind of we were staying in this temporary rental for a while after we closed on the house to get it ready. And so every evening, uh, we'd eat some dinner real quick, bring the kids over, put them down in pack and plays in one of the bedrooms, and we just go to work. Like, so this, the previous owners of this house had, had smoked inside the house for about 40 years and never painted a wall. Uh, so white walls that were now like yellow slash brown, uh, you know, they had carpet all over the upstairs, uh, potential covering some nice hardwood floors that needed to be refinished. Uh, they had carpet in the kitchen. Uh, I don't know why anyone ever thinks that's a good idea, but that, that was there. Uh, so, so we painted everything, like, in that house. Like, not just, like, we put a coat of paint on it. Like, no, I'm talking, we put a coat of kills, and, and then, like, three coats of paint on almost every wall and every ceiling in the entire house. We ripped up all the flooring, all the carpet. We redid, refinished the floors. And when I say we refinished the floors, I mean we found somebody and we paid them to refinish the floors because I am completely useless at anything like that. So we, we, this is a total renovation project. We did this. This is what we did for, like, weeks, every evening. We would do this, put the kids down, go to work, work until like one, two in the morning, and we're just dead, crash, go back to the rental and crash, get up, do it the next day again. But it had to be done. We had to make it livable. We had to get the kind of the smell, the smoke out of the walls. And in a sense, we had to purify this place so we could live in it. Um, and that, that doesn't sound all that out of the ordinary for buying a home and needing to do kind of a, a renovation or some work to kind of get it ready to move in. But in Hebrews 9.23, we do find something extraordinary. It tells us that Jesus' sacrifice actually purified heaven. His sacrifice actually purified heaven itself. How? Why does heaven need to be purified? What, what could this possibly mean? Well, let's, let's take a look. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28 today. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you uh, for your word, and we thank you for this time to be gathered together, to sit under it, to hear from you. And and we pray by your spirit that you'd open our hearts to hear. Jesus, that you would be lifted up and glorified for the the total renovation, the total work of salvation that you do for us. God, give us just a glimpse of, of the wonder of that today, that we might fall more deeply in love with you, that we might give ourselves more completely in your service to live for your glory that we might be people who are eagerly waiting your return and the glory that you will bring with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Right, so, so verse 23 is telling us that, that Christ's sacrifice purified heaven itself. The key to understanding this is, is what immediately precedes verse 23, which is the very end of the passage that we looked at last week, which talks about how the blood of animals was used to purify everything, right, connected to the old covenant, right? It was sprinkled on the book of the law. It was sprinkled on the people by Moses. It was sprinkled in the tabernacle. It was sprinkled on all the vessels within the tabernacle to purify it. But this is saying that that God or his, but you know, is this saying, as I should say, is this saying that God or his presence is in need of purification? Obviously, no, right? Hopefully you're not taking a long time to get that answer. No, God does not need purification. His presence does not need purifying. It's not because heaven is defiled or that there's anything lacking in God. God lacks nothing. He has need for nothing. But rather, it is because of your sin. It's because of my sin that purification needed to be made for heaven. It is because of our sin. We are the ones in need of atonement. We are the ones in need of purification. We're the ones in need of a a total renovation, body and soul. This this language is highlighting, again, the seriousness of our sin and the enormity of our need for salvation because of our sins. And it's also highlighting for us the incredible greatness of Christ's sacrifice. His sacrifice purifies heaven itself for sinners like us. What a sacrifice that provides for us an all-encompassing salvation. We we see this hinted at in this passage here, the fullness of salvation that we have in Christ as we see the past, present, and future realities of the salvation that Christ has secured for us here. That's that's a framework we're going to follow to kind of walk through this passage. Let's first look at the, the past aspect of our salvation, that Jesus 
has delivered us. He delivered us, past tense, from the guilt of sin. Jesus delivered us from the guilt of sin. Throughout this chapter, we've seen this contrast that that the author, the preacher of Hebrews, really Hebrews is like a sermon, so we'll call him the preacher of Hebrews, this contrast that he is making between Jesus and the old covenant priests. Right? Between Jesus and his death on the cross and, and the old covenant priests and the Old Testament sacrificial system, and in particular, the Day of Atonement, uh, the author of Hebrews has exposed right, the insufficiency of the Levitical priesthood and their sacrifices, their inability to purify our consciences, right? merely external, always needing to be repeated. Right? It's exposed. That exposes the, the insufficiency of those sacrifices that they have to be repeated year after year after year. And he has highlighted the total sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And he continues to do just that in these verses. Right? He tells us, Christ didn't enter into holy places that were made by human hands, but he came into the very presence of God. He didn't offer himself repeatedly He doesn't come into God's presence year after year with the blood of animals, but he came one time with his own blood. And we see in verse uh, verse 26, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus' death on the cross was a singular event in history. It's a moment in history, a historical moment, a historical fact, right? The most central event in, hi- in history, right? Where Jesus, by his death on the cross, defeated Satan, sin, and death. The victory was complete. And so Jesus does not need to be sacrificed daily, monthly, yearly. One time is sufficient. That's one of the many reasons why we, as believers in Christ, we, we celebrate the resurrection We rejoice in the resurrection because the resurrection declares the completeness of his work. The resurrection declares, as he declared from his cross, it is finished, paid in full. His death for sin has paid our debt in in total. At that moment in history, on that Good Friday, that one Good Friday, Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, fully God, fully man, our perfect high priest, Jesus willingly exchanged his perfect sinless life for your sins and went to the cross on Calvary and died in your place, the death that you deserve to put away sin, to defeat it, to set you free from its tyranny. This is a past deliverance a historical deliverance that was accomplished at the cross of Christ almost 2,000 years ago. Imagine, right? Imagine, it's going to be really hard for you to do this in a college town, but imagine that you are saddled with an enormous amount of student loan debt. Right? Imagine you're just buried in debt. But then a rich benefactor comes your way, and and in in a moment... A historical moment of history for you, he pays your debt in full. Wipes it clean, right? The slate wiped clean, your debt is gone, right? Suddenly in that moment, you are liberated. You are liberated from that debt, right? From the weight of that debt, from the burden of that debt. But before you felt labeled by it, 
right? You felt marked by your debt. But now it's gone and you're free, right? You're free. Aunt Sally doesn't own you anymore, right? You're free. That's what Christ has done with your debt of sin. Only the reality is that your debt of sin was something that you never, by your own effort, could ever possibly pay off. There, there is no payment plan for that. No monthly payment plan that you could ever come to. No amount of church attendance, no amount of Bible reading, no amount of serving others, no amount of good works that would ever add up to enough to pay for your debt of sin. You, there's no Dave Ramsey plan that's going to help you. Uh, no amount of good works is ever going to do it. It's impossible for you or I to ever pay off the debt we owe because of our sin. Yet Jesus at his cross... And that one moment in history paid your debt in full. In his death, right, as excruciating as the physical pain of the cross was. And, and it was painful, right? The word excruciating is a word that was invented to describe the pain of crucifixion. As, it, as, as excruciating as the physical pain, the real torment that Jesus suffered was the cosmic suffering that he took in your place. Lots of people died on crosses, the Romans crucified a lot of people. But what makes Christ's cross different is that he suffered cosmically the full cup of God's wrath meant for your sin. In his death, he took the cosmic judgment that you and I deserve. At that moment, the father turned his face away from the son. And for the only moment in eternity, the son of God was cut off from perfect loving fellowship with the father. Jesus suffered in that moment the eternal separation from God that you and I deserve. He took the full cup of God's wrath that was intended for our sins and he drank every last drop so that for those of us who are in Christ, there is no more wrath. There is no more wrath for you. There's only grace, only favor, only forgiveness, only acceptance, only being brought in as children of God. At the cross, Jesus paid your debt in full. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Right, again, he's not purifying heaven for heaven's sake. He's purifying it so that we can be there with him in the presence of God. Because of Christ's sacrifice, Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. As one commentator says, by Christ's death, it is not only that the devil is deposed and the power of death overcome, but also that sin is vanquished. Jesus came to rob sin of its tyranny and its suffocating stranglehold on man. Obviously, sin is still at large in the world, just as death and the devil are still active. But all three have been robbed of their former hold on man. In Christ, we are free from their enslaving power. Right? Debt enslaves. Debt means somebody owes you. But Christian, Jesus has paid your debt in full. But in doing so, he did, he did much more than just give you a clean slate. He didn't just give you a clean slate. He, he gave you so much more. He didn't just erase your past sins and give you a clean record and tell you, hey, don't screw this up. That's not what Jesus did. 
That's not what he did. He didn't say, don't screw it up. You better be good now. That's not what he did. No, listen to the truth of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear that? Jesus not only takes your sin, defeats it, removing its mark on you, declaring you not guilty. He not only declares you not guilty, even more in Christ, he eternally declares you righteous. Righteous, the righteousness of God. He clothes you in his perfection. He doesn't just give you a clean slate. He hands you a full slate, as Scotty Smith would say, right? A full slate of his own righteousness. He doesn't just reduce your debt to a zero balance. He credits your account with his own righteousness, his perfect righteousness and an unending supply of grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus has, in one moment of history, once for all, delivered you from the guilt of sin. That's the past reality of your salvation we see here. But there's more. We also see a present aspect. Jesus in the present, presently, he delivers us from the power of sin. Jesus delivers us from the power of sin. This is good for us to hear because while we are, or at least we should be, uh, overjoyed by the victory Christ has won for us at the cross, and we should be giving thanks that we are delivered from the guilt of sin, we also acknowledge that we still wrestle with sin. Even more, we, we acknowledge that we fall flat on our face in the muck and the mire of our sin daily. We're still in a daily battle with sin. So this is good news that there is also a present aspect to our salvation. And the good news of this present reality of our salvation is pointed to in verse 24. Verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now, to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Right now, repeatedly, the preacher of Hebrews has told us, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Right now, Jesus is in the presence of God on our behalf. Right now. Jesus died. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised. And after a period of time appearing to, to many witnesses, he ascended into heaven and he remains there right now in the presence of God on our behalf where he prays for us, where he intercedes for us. This is a present salvation. This is a present salvation. In this aspect of our salvation, we are being saved day by day. Right? When it comes to the guilt of your sin, you were saved by the death of Christ on the cross for your sins. But there's another sense in which because we still face sin and temptation day by day, we constantly need to be saved. The appearing of Christ on the cross put away the guilt of sin. The appearing of Christ in the presence of God empowers us to fight and overcome indwelling sin. 
Sanctification is the theological word we use to describe this aspect, this present aspect of our salvation, right? Where justification describes that past aspect. Justification, of course, the theological word that for that past aspect where, where we are justified, we are declared righteous because of the finished work of Christ. At that moment on the cross, we were justified by faith in Jesus. We were justified, declared righteous by his finished work. Sanctification is that ongoing process of salvation, where we are in an ongoing way, day by day, we're growing in Christ-likeness. We're growing in holiness to more and more reflect the image and likeness of Christ in our own lives. This ongoing salvation that is referenced here by Christ now appearing in the presence of God on our behalf is, is even more explicitly referenced elsewhere in the scripture. Maybe most poignantly in Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13, where it talks about work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's speaking about a present, ongoing process of growing in holiness, growing in Christ's likeness. But there's a reality that in our sin, right, in our sinful nature, that is still present within us, we can hear those words from Philippians 2 and sinfully pursue legalism instead of Christ. Right? That is, we can be tempted by sin just as much to try to keep all the rules and make ourselves holy and righteous by our own efforts alone. Just as tempted to do that as we are to just be flat out rebellious and dive head, head first into all sorts of other sins of commission. But Philippians 2 is not calling us to bear down and rely purely on our own strength and effort to grow in Christ-likeness. It's, it's describing a partnership. It's describing a partnership where you work in step with God who works in you by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This working out is to be this continual work of real sustained effort on your part, for sure. Absolutely, it's a partnership. But your effort is based on a confidence that the Spirit is at work within you, renewing you, growing you, transforming you by grace because of Christ and his finished work, enabling you and empowering you more and more to desire what God desires, empowering you to want to obey God and live for his glory more and more, enabling you to actually say no to sin and yes to obedience, yes to God's commands. It's a partnership where you are dependent upon the Spirit, but you are exerting real effort. I love how Jerry Bridges, author, describes it. He says it like this. He says, in the, in the process of sanctification, there are certain things that only the Holy Spirit can do, and there are certain things that he has given us to do. For example, only he can create in our hearts the desire to obey God, but he does not obey for us. We must do that, but we can do so only as he gives us the enabling power to obey. It's a partnership. 
It is Jesus in partnership with the Father, of course, who sends the Holy Spirit to us. He promises to send the Comforter in John's Gospel, and and he sends the Holy Spirit to us. The Spirit works within us to conform us more and more to the likeness of Christ, and we work in partnership with the Spirit, propelled by the intercession of Jesus Christ himself, who is right now in the presence of God, praying for us, interceding for us, knowing, knowing that he's there, knowing that he is there right now doing that, praying, praying for you. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Is that moving you in your life, Christian? That Christ right now is in the presence of God interceding for you and proclaiming truth over you, proclaiming before the Father that your sins are forgiven, that they are paid in full. He's doing that right now, moment by moment, day by day. Knowing this, by the power of the Spirit at work within us, we are empowered to put sin to death and to live for Christ. Not perfectly, but knowing that even when we fall, even when we fall on our face in sin, we have, as it says in in 1 John 2, verse 1, even when we fall in our sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who represents us, who intercedes for us, who speaks up on our behalf right before the throne of heaven saying, I've paid for that. That is covered by my blood. They are forgiven. They are righteous children of God. That's the present aspect of our salvation that that Jesus is working for us right now by his intercession, by the work of his Holy Spirit. He is delivering us from the power of sin. There's a past and a present aspect, and there's also a future reality of our salvation that we see in this text. Jesus will deliver us from the presence of sin. He will deliver us from the presence of sin. Look again at verses 27 and 28. And just as it is, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus will appear a second time. Not to offer himself as a sacrifice a second time. There's no need for that. His sacrifice is more than sufficient for all of your sins, past, present, and future. Now, he will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is a future salvation. He's coming again. He's coming again. But in speaking of this future salvation, the preacher of Hebrews, rather matter-of-factly in passing, mentions the truth that many of us in our culture, and honestly, many of us even in the church, kind of deny with our words, with our thoughts, with our actions. This is the truth, verse 27, that is appointed for every human being to live once, to die once, and then face judgment, and then face God's judgment. But we live in a culture where when death comes, regardless of one's faith, regardless of one's spirituality, we just comfort one another by saying what? Well, they're in a better place. Well, they're in a better place. And in saying that, what we are communicating is that there is no judgment. There is no judgment. That it doesn't matter how you live. 
It doesn't matter what you believe, but anyone who dies just simply goes to a better place. The problem with that is that it simply is not true. It's not true. We don't know the eternal state of anyone's soul, right? We can't see into someone's soul and know for certain. But we should be very careful not to give false assurance where there is no evidence of faith that we can see. What is true is that every single human being who dies faces judgment. And the reason for this, it takes it back, it takes us back to the Garden of Eden in the opening pages of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, where God had told our first parents to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And giving in to temptation and sin, they do just that. And Genesis 3 tells us about their sin and tells us how God appointed in that moment their death. God sentenced Adam and Eve to death as the just penalty for their disobedience and their sin. And at that moment of their sin in the garden, mortality entered into the human experience. And the result is, for every human being, your life is lived once, and then you die, and then you will face judgment. You will face judgment. You will die, and God will judge you. That is the truth. And this, too, points us to the glorious provision of the all-encompassing salvation that is available to us only in Jesus. You will die and you will face judgment, but there is hope for those who put their trust in Christ. When you face that judgment, you will either be judged by your works and your sins apart from Christ, on your own, your own merit. And as a result, you will not go to a better place but you will suffer eternal separation from God, eternal torment and judgment. Or, for those who put their hope in Christ, who put their faith in Jesus, the truth is that Jesus has already faced your judgment for you. He suffered it for you on the cross. He took it in your place. And as a result of your faith in Jesus, you face judgment clothed in the righteousness of Christ, covered, accepted, welcomed, and ushered in to live with Christ in the presence of God in the fullness of his glorious kingdom forever and ever, a better place indeed. But to go there requires a decision for Jesus. It requires that you put your hope in Christ and join in with those who are eagerly awaiting his return. And this points us to another reality that we should, that we should be a people living in light of a certain future hope. Where's your hope? Where's your hope, right? We have a certain future hope, a hope that cannot be robbed, that cannot be taken from us. No diagnosis, right? No persecution, no suffering, no election results can steal that hope away from us. Nothing, nothing. It is certain. We know that it is certain because the tomb of Christ is empty. Because God is always faithful to his covenant word. He always keeps his promises. And here is a most glorious promise right here in verse 28. Jesus 
Christ will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And when he comes again, he will fully deliver us. Fully deliver us from the presence of sin. From the presence of sin. There will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering. The theological term for this future salvation is glorification. Right When Christ returns... We will be resurrected with him, our souls reunited with glorified resurrection bodies patterned after the resurrection body of Christ. John was blessed with a vision of this future glory that awaits those who are in Christ. In Revelation 21, he describes on that day when Christ appears again and for all eternity, there will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death. There will be no more sin. Only peace and joy and glory with Christ forever and ever and with his people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible talks about it. It describes it as the day when all the sad things come untrue. It's not wishful thinking. It's absolute certainty. Absolute certainty, Christian. Don't believe the hype that some election and the results of the election can steal your hope. He will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's some some things we need to listen to there. Waiting. Waiting means that if you are in Christ, you should be looking forward and longing for Christ's return. Does that describe you? Are you looking forward and longing for his return in the midst of a pandemic? in the midst of racial tensions and injustice, in the midst of poverty, suffering, in the midst of the clown show that is our presidential election, we should be absolutely saying, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. We're looking forward, we're longing for you to return. Even in the midst of so much earthly pain and struggle and uncertainty, we should be a people of real hope. And that hope should be moving us. It should be transforming us, propelling us to live as ambassadors of that hope. Caring for the needs of others around us. Offering listening ears and compassionate shoulders to to lean on and cry on. Extending practical care for the needs that we are able to kind of come alongside and meet all while pointing people to the only hope any of us ever can cling to, Jesus Christ. What a glorious, all-encompassing salvation we have in Jesus. Amen? He has delivered us from the guilt of sin. He is delivering us from the power of sin. And he will come again to fully deliver us from the presence of sin. My question for you is, have you received it? Have you put your hope in that salvation? Have you trusted in Christ for your rescue from the certain judgment that awaits you after you die? Now's the time, right? Today is the day. Let's not put it off. Jesus has done everything required to accomplish your rescue from Satan, sin, and death. And all you need, as the hymn says, is to feel your need of him. That's all you need. Just to see that you need him. 
That's all that he requires. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get your life together first. You just need to see that you need a savior and his name is Jesus Christ. He won't simply give you a clean slate. He's gonna give you a full slate of his righteousness and his grace. So come to him, come to him. He stands ready to meet you and save you. You need only come. Christian, brother or sister, how is this salvation shaping your life? Where is your hope today? Where is your hope? Is it, is it in Christ or is it in your circumstances? Are you walking in step with the Spirit today? Seeking to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Are you applying Christ's victory to your life to empower you to say no to sin and yes to his commands? Are you living with confidence in the hope that awaits you when he comes again? Are you letting that move you to persevere in the face of, of trials and difficulties? Are you letting it move you to tell others about that hope so that they might be able to share in it with you? Make no mistake, this all-encompassing salvation is not just for you. It is for others as well. People that don't look like you, people that don't think like you, people who don't vote like you. And Christ has called you to share this hope with him. Will you trust him? Right? Will you join him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son to be our once for all sacrifice who has delivered us in such a total and all-encompassing way. Jesus, thank you for delivering us from the guilt of sin. Thank you uh, that you continue to uh, free us from the power of sin, that, that you're returning to finally and completely save us from the presence of sin and death. Holy Spirit, enable us to trust in this rescue. Help us to apply it to every part of our lives and give us assurance grounded in the unshakable hope that we have in Christ that we might live more and more to share that hope with others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.